0: You're listening to the Diplomat's podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host Ankit Panda, editor at large at the Diplomat, uh, and I am taping today from Washington, D.C. Um, so, listeners of this podcast uh, might recall that we spent quite a bit of time talking about the South China Sea, uh, which, of course, being Asia's one of, uh, being one of Asia's primary flashpoints, uh, certainly makes sense. In fact, I, if I recall correctly, uh, way back in February 2014, when we started this podcast, the very first episode was discussing uh, the state of the South China Sea and disputes there. And so I'm glad to return to the topic today. But what I'm especially glad about is the guest joining me today. Uh, I'm sure many, many of our readers and listeners of The Diplomat will be familiar with Bill Hayton, uh, an associate fellow with the Asia-Pacific program at Chatham House and the author of um, one of the best books on the South China Sea. I'll put a link to Bill's book in, in the show notes. Bill's done a tremendous amount of digging in the archives, uh, looking at the historical origins of Chinese and other claims in the South China Sea, uh, sea region. So, Bill, it's uh, it's really a pleasure to uh, welcome you to the Asia Geopolitics Podcast. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Well, thank you. I normally listen to your podcast when I'm going for a run, so it's quite nice to be on it rather than just listening to it, I suppose. I guess, I guess this is one episode I won't be listening
0: to. Well, yeah, you know, you never know. I mean, uh, you might want to no. listen to yourself, uh, you know, not being out of breath if you're uh, on a yeah, run. Yeah. So, uh, no, but anyways, <laughs> I really appreciate it. And actually, uh, you know, the topic, Bill, uh, today, you know, just for our listeners is, um, and, you know, we're, we're a little bit behind the anniversary, but earlier this month in uh, in, in July 2021, we hit the five-year anniversary of the landmark ruling by a tribunal of five judges at the Hague-based Permanent Court of Arbitration back in uh, in 2016. On July 12, 2016, to be precise, this was the unanimous award by the tribunal in the Republic of Philippines versus the People's Republic of China case filed in 2013 by Manila concerning maritime entitlements and the status of features, among other issues, in the South China Sea. Um, so... Bill, look, you know, I, will, I will kind of give you the floor. Uh, I know that our listeners will be aware of the ruling, uh, but the finer details, particularly the legal significance and what exactly the ruling decided at the time, um, you know, I'll, I'll sort of leave that to you. So if you don't mind, can you give us your best sort of you know, two, three-minute spiel on, on, yeah. on why this ruling was significant and what it did?
1: Yeah, great. Thank you. It was a very clever uh, piece of legal work by the Philippines, and they had some uh, very clever and, I imagine, expensive advice from international lawyers so what they were very careful to do was say we want a case that says nothing at all about who owns the islands the rocks and the reefs uh, because uh, this tribunal wouldn't be able to handle that then what they wanted to do was say in the spaces in between the rocks and the reefs in the sea uh, who has the rights to the resources and this was powered by the fact that there's a thought to be a very large gas field uh, under the uh, place a piece of seabed called the reed bank uh, off the Philippines' coast, which the Philippines wants to exploit, um, and China was basically stopping them, and and that was the you know the, largely the driving force behind it, um, and so they went to something called well they 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 conv- they called for an international arbitral tribunal. Uh, now often people talk about this as the the PCA or the Permanent Court of Arbitration, which isn't strictly accurate, but that organisation, the PCA, was the secretariat for this International Arbitral Tribunal. Uh, And by the time all the legal kind of uh, thinking had been gone through, the Philippines was asking for clarification on 15 points, uh, some of which were quite specific, but there were two really broad ones. One was, did any of the rocks or reefs uh, in the southern part of the South China Sea, the Spratly Islands and Scarborough Shoal, which is an isolated uh, coral reef, um, did they constitute islands in the full legal sense does that mean did they generate an exclusive economic zone of, of 200 nautical miles or approximately 400 kilometers around them could they was, was it was it possible the other thing was uh, china has this u-shaped line or nine dash line and uh, drawn on its maps in the south china sea did that line could that line mean anything in an international legal sense could it be a claim on resources um and on both of those two points Uh, And on another 12 points, so in total 14 out of the 15, uh, the judges said, uh, ruled in the Philippines favor, they said there was nothing in the law of the sea, UNCLOS, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, um, that would allow China to simply draw a line in the sea and say all of the fish and resources in this line are ours. And then they also said that none of the little islands or islets, you could might say, uh, uh, in the southern part are able to sustain human habitation or an economic life. But that's the phrase in the in UNCLOS. Um, and so therefore they couldn't generate an exclusive economic zone. So therefore, it, ultimately, uh, up to 200 nautical miles away from the coast of the Philippines, all the fish, uh, all the uh, uh, oil and gas resources underneath it uh, belong to the Philippines. Um, in in, in broad sense, except for small little areas uh, around each individual disputed feature. And so that was a huge win for uh, the Philippines. Um, And it basically said that a lot of what China has been trying to do over the last 20, 30 years um, was, uh, I'm not sure whether they would use illegal, but certainly not supported by international law. Uh, The slight catch in this is it's 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 only binding on China and the Philippines. So at the moment, you know, Vietnam can't use this, or Malaysia, or Brunei, or, or Indonesia. Um, but I imagine if they were to bring a similar case to a similar tribunal, then the judges might rule uh, in a, in a similar way, depending on. Who the judges were, of course.
0: Yeah, that is a question that I want to actually get get to later in this discussion today about uh, you know what the legacy of this ruling uh, tells other countries about the potential value of using international law as a tool to deal with their uh, disputes with with China on these legal matters. Uh, you know, before we move on, Bill, though, I, I did want to ask you because uh, at the time the ruling came out, uh, we were about um, you know 18, 18 to twenty four months since news of uh, China's land reclamation activities at seven features in the Spratly Islands became widely known. And this was something that the uh, that the tribunal also handled up front, including the environmental effects uh, of that activity. Could you say a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so the case was uh, unveiled uh, in January 2013. And I think the first sort of uh, signs we had of Chinese vessels actually doing dredging and uh, building uh, on any of the reefs was about six, or, I don't know, I think September to nine months later. Uh, in 2013 Um, some people say that it was you know that that, uh, the island building was a response to the Philippines bringing this uh, tribunal case Um, but I mean there's no way they could have you know done the plans organized the dredges all that kind of stuff in nine months they'd clearly been you know looking to do it for a long time before that but they were able to kind of use the lodging of the tribunal. They're saying, well, if you're going to do this, then we're going to you know, cement our claim, literally. Um, so yeah, they, they carried on uh, doing that. Um, the, the most important uh, part of the arbitral ruling you know, in relating to the artificial islands was that there's one of the one of the three large um, bases that the Chinese have built is on a, a feature called Mischief Reef, which is the closest one to the Philippines, to the island of Palawan. Um, and it's a, it's a low tide elevation, i.e. in its natural state. And this is what the, the tribunal was asked to rule on. In its natural state, was it an island? And they said, no, it's it's a low tide elevation. All the sort of previous sort of mariners charts or descriptions had said it, it's, it's covered at high tide. Therefore, it's not an island. It doesn't generate any exclusive economic zone. Um, so, and basically it says that... Um, since this is not an island capable of being owned uh, uh it belongs to the philippines because it's in their exclusive economic zone so china should abandon it um and i guess that's probably the <laughs> the part of the ruling that i can see is being least likely to be um actually uh, uh, abided by because obviously china has spent I thought probably at least a billion dollars or so building that base and i can hardly see them giving it up voluntarily um they may be prepared to make uh, concessions on other, other, other aspects, but that's going to be a real uh, you know, thorn, I think, for uh, the two countries' relations for a long time to come.
0: Right, so we've talked a little bit about what what happened and what was decided on July 12, twenty sixteen. Let's now shift gears to talk a little bit about the last five years in the South China Sea. Obviously, a topic that you know uh, could be the subject of many podcasts. And uh, you know, for listeners, I will also include in the show notes uh, just uh, some of the writing and reporting we did at the Diplomat on the contents of the ruling, if you are interested in that. Um, but Bill, I mean, you know, maybe the place to start here uh, is with the Philippines, because I remember uh, you know I remember the summer of twenty sixteen quite vividly because I was doing a lot of writing. On the South China Sea, and following this ruling, and of course, we had a presidential transition in the Philippines that year. In fact, I think uh, it was June 30th when Rodrigo Duterte was uh, was welcomed into office, and his uh, outgoing predecessor um, Benigno Aquino the Third had been the most vocal um, proponent of of this um, of this um, process at the International Tribunal. And uh, you know, the rest is history, as they say. But you know, looking back in uh, you know five years from now, I mean that that transition I think had quite a bit of an effect. I think it's fair to say on the um. way in which the Philippines um, dealt with the outcome of of the tribunal ruling. Tell us a little bit. I mean, it, it, in hindsight, you know, when the history of this era is written, um, how significant uh, is that transition from Aquino to uh, to Duterte likely to be? Uh, when we when we think about this ruling and potentially you know the counterfactual scenario where uh, you know we might have had a different Philippine president who had taken a greater interest in the ruling. How <laughs> Yeah, how did how did things play out?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it was absolutely critical. I mean, the, the Philippines has this uh, strange electoral system where they have a multi-candidate uh, presidential election, but only one round. So, if there were five candidates, I think uh, back in 2016, uh, and you can win by getting you know a third of the vote because you just get more than you know the, the largest number of any of the of any of the candidates. There's no second round runoff like in say France. Um, and so he he wins uh, on a minority of the vote um, uh, I mean there was a time you know a couple of weeks when theoretically he could have maybe have even cancelled the whole legal process, and you know that all of those uh, you know years of, of legal argument would have been wasted, but he didn't he kind of went through it um, I, I I could have foreseen uh, if another candidate had won that the ruling would have been the plank of a more assertive Philippine strategy towards China where they would have been able to marshal a a coalition of countries in the region, countries outside the region, in support of the principle of international law and the rights of small countries to exploit their own resources without the pressure from big countries. If they'd been portrayed in that way, they could have probably gathered quite a bit of support. Um, But as it was, Mr Duterte came in, and he very much espoused a sort of Philippines first policy. And and this wasn't uh, just about sort of... uh, uh, downgrading relations with the U.S., although that got most of the publicity. I mean, he was very scornful of ASEAN, the, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, working collectively. Um, and, uh, you know, Vietnam had been uh, very pleased that the Philippines was making the running on this uh, legal strategy, and it could just, you know, quietly hide behind them. Um, and all of a sudden, you had a, a, a president who wasn't going to make use of this ruling, and everybody else kind of felt I guess, you know, sort of naked, really. Uh, and other countries around the world, I mean, for example, European countries who might have sort of stepped up and you know, said, you know, we support the application of international law in, in all places. Uh, suddenly they think, well, you can't be more Catholic than the Pope if the Philippines isn't going to stand up and defend its rights um, Uh, granted by this ruling, then, you know, why should the EU or or any other country uh, stand up and and shout about it either? Uh, So, yeah, it really kind of took the wind out of the, the sails of this, what could have been quite a sort of gathering movement in defense of international law
0: yeah you know i mean one of my favorite bits of kind of uh i guess not not really arcana but you know uh, i recall that the taiwanese made a somewhat last minute subse- uh submission on the status of uh, itu Aba or taiping island which i believe also delayed the uh the date of the ruling actually emerging there was a small chance that it might have actually uh, emerged before the uh, presidential transition in the philippines but uh, alas that that was not to be
1: <laughs> yeah so that, that little piece of arcana there that you mentioned um, about the judges kind of taking in this uh, uh, Taiwanese um, intervention. I mean, they really did try to kind of anticipate any arguments that China might use because China was refusing to participate uh, in the ruling. So, for example, when a Chinese diplomat sent a letter to the judges, well, they sort of incorporated that um, in, into their uh, their arguments. Um, and they wanted to hear, even though Taiwan doesn't have any legal standing at the UN or whatever, they accepted this letter um, to kind of consider the arguments about the state of this the largest of the Spratly Islands, Mm -hmm. as a way of being seen to sort of kind of bend over backwards to uh, try and take into account all the possible arguments that China might have deployed uh, had it been willing to take part in the process. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so at the time of the ruling, um, you know, despite the transition in the Philippines, uh, I mean, you know, Rodrigo Duterte's views on 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 the United States, on China, weren't necessarily a surprise by the time he entered office. But, you know, I recall at the time, uh, a lot of analysts obviously uh, celebrated the ruling, uh, saw it as an important victory for international law and for the right of uh, you know uh, smaller countries to equalize their interests against larger powers like China. Um, but ultimately, you know, uh, as you as you said, uh, the status of features on the ground has really not changed in the South China Sea. China maintains its, uh, you know, seven artificial islands in the Spratleys. that has continued to improve infrastructure, um, proceed with the militarization of these facilities. Uh, Philippines-China relations have obviously uh, continued um, under under Duterte, uh, despite a few bumps in the road uh, that we've uh, covered in this podcast before. But, you know, Bill, if, if you had to assess, I mean, overall... Uh, how successful China has been in sort of managing the fallout of, of this ruling, what's your take? I mean, obviously, uh, you know, this ruling remains on the historical record. It is now part of uh, international law precedent for not only the South China Sea, but uh, international maritime law more broadly. Uh, but if you're Beijing, um, I mean, your interest in the South China Sea really necessarily haven't been affected too negatively. Um, so what's your uh, what's your take on how China has really played its cards uh, in the last five years?
1: yeah yeah i think your basic summary is you know that i mean they 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 still occupy those seven very capable military bases they are able to uh, swarm uh, boats around uh, other countries uh, oil and gas exploration efforts or um you know the fishing boats confrontations have, have become a regular occurrence so in that sense uh the and of course um the basis for, you know, the reason why the Philippines brought this case to try and develop the Reed Bank gas reserves, they remain undeveloped. So uh, the Philippines hasn't been able to leverage this ruling really in any significant way that would benefit its own people. Um, China's image clearly has suffered quite a lot. I mean, it's sort of seen, uh, I guess, more clearly as being uh, its policies running against this this ruling and which and just simply adds to the general concern about its behavior in the region more generally but it's been able to you know just sort of you know, uh, to use a, an English expression, to cock a snook at at, at international law um, and, and get away with it. And, and that's because um, obviously uh, there is no global police force that is sort of mandated uh, to go and enforce these rulings um, unless, say, for example, a, a UN Security Council resolution is passed. And of course, China has a veto on a UN Security Council resolution, so it's very unlikely ever to get passed. Um, I mean I, I would say, you know, I hold my hands up and say that I was an optimist at the beginning. I sort of thought that given the way that states are generally behaved with similar rulings. For example, I know Russia um you know had an adverse ruling in the case of a, a Greenpeace vessel, the Arctic Sunrise denounced it and then kind of quietly found a way to comply um i mean the brits had an adverse ruling about uh, the pca uh, about uh, diego garcia and then they sort of found a way to kind of comply at least on paper even going back to the international court of justice ruling against the united states on mining the harbors of uh, nicaragua back in the 1980s they denounced it said they weren't going to comply and then you know in the end when the government changed uh, they paid what well, they didn't call compensation, but they called it aid, and the and the issue went away. So the kind of history has been that big states uh, generally try and comply with uh, even uh, rulings they don't like. Um, but China has basically, you know, stuck up its middle finger um, and refused to comply on, on so many levels, and there hasn't been much of a uh, much of a well any form of sanction, I suppose, um, just sort of a bit of rhetorical condemnation and a kind of it's been part of a hardening of attitudes uh, towards yeah. Beijing.
0: Yeah, I mean, under under Xi Jinping, I mean, I think uh, one of the common trends in in Chinese statecraft has been to show really no no interest in the slightest degree of compromise on China's so called core interests, uh, and uh, and the South China Sea uh, has, I think, um, definitely seen some of that as well. Um, but you know, I mean, uh, I think I think this is a good segue to return uh, to that question that came up earlier er, earlier in our discussion today, uh, which is, you know, when. You know, if you're if you're in Hanoi uh, and you're sort of looking at the last five years and the value of international law in sort of dealing with one's grievances with China, uh, what do you take away from this? I mean, I mean, what is the likelihood of other countries, other claimants resorting to, uh, you know, international tribunals uh, arbitration in the future uh, to contend with these issues? Right. It's not just Vietnam, Indonesia, other countries. um, You know, what are they what are they thinking?
1: Well, let's let's start with Vietnam, and I think the uh, answer there is is highly, highly unlikely. Um, I mean, Vietnam and China have this special relationship. They're both run by communist parties. They have this party-to-party relationship, which is more important than their state-to-state relationship. Um, And it would be seen, I think, as a um, a monumental um, kind of uh, piece of grandstanding by the Vietnamese to do that. I think the Chinese would take it extraordinarily badly. I mean, the... um, the Vietnamese have more or less uh, abandoned any idea of drilling for oil and gas on the, let's call it the, the Chinese side of the U-shaped line. And I mean that kind of in, in strongly inverted commas, the disputed area, you might say. Um, uh, and so, in effect, China has asserted a kind of uh, you know, a monopoly over, on, certainly for the regarding the vietnamese over oil and gas exploration in in the disputed areas vietnam has kind of caved uh, because it doesn't want to provoke a confrontation because there are more important things to the party in the in the vietnam china relationship than simply the south china sea they would wish it were otherwise but you know um given uh their you know uh, unwillingness to to jump wholeheartedly into some kind of alliance with any other country uh they'll work hard to maintain, uh, kind of stable relationships, uh, with, with China, uh, as regards other countries, I mean, potentially Indonesia, uh, Brunei and Malaysia could all bring similar cases, um, based on what China has been doing. And I think they all basically take the view that in the round, um, their relationship with China, uh, has sort of pluses and minuses and they'll accept the minuses on the South China sea, um, If they can get the positives, you know, in terms of, you know, trade, I guess, and the sort of big economic questions um, uh, in in other parts of the relationship. Um, I mean, the Indonesians, for example, would have had a sort of clear case uh, when China or uh, Chinese Coast Guard vessels, for example, protect uh, Chinese fishing boats uh, operating off the Natuna Islands at the very sort of southwestern end of the uh, the U-shaped line. I mean, it, it, it's clearly, you know, a, a violation of UNCLOS by, by almost anyone who's reading except the people in Beijing. Um, and yet they haven't been willing to do it. They've been willing to do things like, you know, capture... Uh, fishing boats that are really egregiously operating in the wrong areas um and blow some of them up in the past and i think but most of those that were blown up were were southeast asian boats and i think only one or two were were chinese so um yeah i mean they they've all been extremely cautious uh about uh uh, talking about legal rights from time to time you hear a rumor that the vietnamese are really thinking about this time they finally will bring a legal case but it's kind of um you know i I think it's um, you know, diplomatic saber rattling, really. It's about sort of sending a message. No, no, this time we really are desperately unhappy with what you're doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, we've seen we've seen several rounds of what I would what I would describe as fairly dramatic crises, I suppose, involving Vietnam and China, and if that hasn't tilted the needle. Uh, in Hanoi, I don't think, you know, anything really well in the short term. Uh, so I think I share your assessment there. Um, you know, Before we come to the end of the discussion, I did want to bring in the United States a little bit. Uh, you know, we had this interesting, interesting development in 2020, where the Trump administration um, reviewed American policy towards the South China Sea and really updated it to bring it in line with the findings of the 2016 tribunal. This sort of began with a note verbal at the UN submitted by the US ambassador to the United Nations. Um, but broadly speaking, uh, you know, the U.S. has sort of um, maintained its traditional focus on freedom of navigation and overflight in the South China Sea, but also broadens its scope more broadly to the freedom of the seas, focusing on the right of claimant states to uh, exploit resources that are rightfully theirs, including, you know, supporting Vietnam against, uh, quote, Chinese bullying uh, over over um, hydrocarbon exploitation and so forth. Uh, you know, if, if you had to sort of give the Biden administration um, pointers on you know how how this ruling might usefully inform the united states uh strategy in the south china sea not just you know bilaterally with china but also in terms of approaching other claimant states approaching southeast asian countries the philippines an american ally um you know what would you have to say about about the value of this ruling there i mean does this does this really continue to have importance for the united states per se or is, is u.s policy in this region better served by uh, through other means
1: I, I absolutely agree with what I think is the thrust behind your question, which is that um, so the US, I think, historically has seen its interest in the region in quite narrow terms. Things like freedom of navigation, the rights of military vessels to sail through the South China Sea unimpeded. Um, also the, the security of treaty allies, I guess, um, thinking about the Philippines, uh, but also you know, Japan and, and potentially, I guess, even Thailand as, a, as, as an actual treaty ally. Um, Whereas the countries in the region are thinking more about the economic value they get from the South China Sea, plus also the kind of the the, the concern about China becoming too overbearing uh, in in the region. And so by putting themselves... behind the interests of the Southeast Asian countries and saying, well, you know, we're just as concerned about your ability to manage fish stocks or to exploit your oil and gas reserves, you know, as you are. Clearly, they're trying to align themselves uh, with with the regional agenda. Um, Whether it will be enough, I'm not entirely sure, because, you know, no matter how much the United States does in the region, there's this sort of latent perception among Southeast Asians that China is always going to be here and the U.S. is always going to be on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. And at some point, you know, the Americans may go home, you know, and here, you know, Southeast Asians will say, well, you know, the United States left in 1975, you know, from Indochina. Um, You know, what's to say it it won't happen again or, you know, in some some other kind of framework? So none of the Southeast Asians are ever going to kind of jump completely uh, into bed with the united states and so there's always going to be a kind of a gap uh between uh what the us can promise and what the southeast asians will take from that promise if you like there's you know gonna, whether they really will deliver on um you know whether it be sort of uh, a military I mean, military aid of, of some kind or even kind of economic muscle so i think the one thing i I think that the US has to do is uh, what I've heard called you know, full spectrum engagement, um, not just talking about um, you know freedom of navigation operations or you know uh, military support. Um, Southeast Asians want you know vaccines, they want for, for COVID, they want economic support, they want agricultural you know advice and access to markets, all this kind of stuff. They're kind of the things that now China is getting much much better at doing, um, and I think there's been a tendency to kind of sit back and kind of assume that the way that the US engaged with the region would just carry on and that would be fine Um, and not really seeing I think how much the ground has shifted in Southeast Asia how much China has upped its game on lots of different levels um, not just the economic but in uh, other other ways too Um, and for the US to kind of to catch up and I think you know the, the US has got to demonstrate that it's and and Frankly, other countries, even the Europeans, that they they've got skin in the game. That a, a policy which is just based on very expensive military deployments, um, you know, into the foreseeable future. Um, uh, it's you know how in an English expression, I don't know if it's used you know, how is it going to wash its face? Um, you know, who's actually going to pay for this? Uh, what are the actual material benefits that the American economy gets from engagement in Southeast Asia? Is it, or is it just going to be a loss leader that they're just going to spend lots of money on, on, on ships and, and planes um, and expect the American taxpayer to kind of to foot the bill? At some point, the American taxpayer is going to say, you know, where's the value for money here? Um, and so, you know, there's got to be, you know, a much bigger emphasis, I think, on the trade and the people-to-people stuff, um, you know, which is there, uh, but I just don't think it gets um, as much uh, coverage as the as the security stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Bill, uh, thanks so much for joining me today and for sharing your uh, tremendous insights on the South China Sea. It's always a pleasure to chat to you.
1: And with you, Ankit, the uh, you know the most knowledgeable person I know on the on the whole of Asia. So it's, it's been a privilege to talk to you. Thanks a lot.
0: For listeners, if you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere else you get your shows. We're pretty much everywhere. And finally, if you've been a listener for a while but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. It really helps uh, get the word out about the show and helps us grow. We really do appreciate that. Thanks a lot for listening, and I'll be back soon with more.